This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. You're listening to Sanguine and Bleeding, a film and television podcast that searches for vampires on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. I'm Sarah Welch Larson, and Kevin, did I just hear you right? I, I'm, should I start running? Do you have pointy teeth? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. It's just the, the usual intro that I do every week. Oh, no. Uh, I guess I better find a crucifix really, really fast. Listeners, we are going to be sinking our teeth into several vampire movies this week. Um, first up, the new release that we're reviewing is going to be Morbius, directed by Daniel Espinoza and part of the ever-growing Sony universe of superheroes. We're also going to be talking about a vampire movie that I hold dear to my heart. It is uh, Let the Right One In. I'm going to introduce Sarah, who is a vampire aficionado in her own right, oh, yes. to that movie this week. That's coming up in our watch list segment. All that's coming up on episode 328 of Seeing and Believing. You need a doctor? I am a doctor. I should have died years ago. People all over the world have my disease. I'm here. To find a cure, we have to push the boundaries, take the risks. If you're gonna run, do it now. Yes, we're here on episode 328 of Seeing and Believing. <laughs> Sorry that we got the uh, that title mixed around. I can't imagine wh- how that happened in that cold open there, but you know. Bloody confusing, happen. but yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that may be the last vampire-related pun in it this episode. but absolutely will not be. There will be more vampire puns. Okay, well, uh, listeners, that'll give you something to look forward to. Another thing to look forward to in the second segment, we're going to be talking about Let the Right One In, which I'm really excited to share with Sarah since she's a vampire movie aficionado, and that was one that uh, you hadn't had a chance to catch up with yet. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that'll be a, a good discussion for sure. Um, but we are going to first take a look at the latest vampire movie to to hit theaters, the new release, uh, Morbius. This is uh, the latest edition in Sony's quasi-MCU, where we uh, take a look at the villains and anti-heroes from the uh, Spider-Man universe. Here's the film's official synopsis. Dangerously ill with a rare blood disorder and determined to save others suffering his same fate, Dr. Michael Morbius, played by Jared Leto, attempts a desperate gamble. While at first it seems to be a radical success, a darkness inside him is unleashed. Will good override evil, or will Morbius succumb to his mysterious new urges? So what that official synopsis is being kind of inexplicably cagey about is vampirism. Michael Morbius becomes a super vampire and has to decide whether to use his evil powers for good or for evil. So Sarah, we we already mentioned you're a vampire aficionado. So Mm -hmm. I really, I was really 
looking forward to talking about this movie with you for a few reasons, but one of them is you know your vampires. So what's your take on this latest entry in the subgenre about one of your favorite kinds of monsters to see on screen? I kind of wish that they'd committed to the vampire bit a little bit more. Like it, there's there's blood drinking, of course. There's like super speed and super hearing, but it really felt like, I don't know, the least vampire vampire movie since the Twilight movies. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I, I don't know, like... Okay, this movie's kind of incomprehensible. Uh, It's about characters that I didn't really care for. It's tangentially related to a comic book franchise that I'm kind of frankly exhausted by. It's incoherently edited, it's poorly lit, and all of the plot beats are really predictable. So it's not scary at all. So Kevin, I am baffled to say I kind of had fun with this. (laughs) And I'm going to need help unpacking that, I think. I, I mean, I'm looking forward to unpacking that with you, probably because that'll be a lot more interesting than what I have to contribute to the conversation, <laughs> which is that I just think this is a terrible, terrible movie. Uh-huh. I I mean, everything you said is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the things that I noticed pretty pretty right off the bat is the, the terrible editing. It's just very inexplicably shoddy. Like, I don't feel like it's not often that you see a mainstream high-level blockbuster like this just be as poorly put together in the nuts and bolts level as Morbius is. Mm-hmm. Um, the the script feels like it was script doctored to within an inch of its life. And I don't know if that's actually true. This is from the same screenwriting duo that also brought us Vin Diesel's The Last Witch Hunter, <laughs> which uh, longtime listeners of the show will know uh, we Wade and I once reviewed on the air because you guys made us do it as as a prank. So <laughs> needless to say, there's no love lost between seeing and believing and these screenwriters. But even by that standard, I just had a really hard time just kind of imagining how <laughs> this script was delivered and people thought it was ready to kind of go to film. So suffice it to say... I don't have hardly anything good to say about this movie. And, you know, maybe I can get into a little bit more detail why later. Maybe not. It's probably not all that important. But let's talk a little bit more about where the fun comes from. Like, this isn't... You don't expect Martin Scorsese uh, to deliver some super insightful monologue about... uh, that's off the cuff about the the incredible camera placement and uh, sequence construction of it. But you might expect if you go to see this movie that, to have at least kind of a, a fun time with it, you mm-hmm. know, fun popcorn munching time. That wasn't the case for me, but it was the case for you. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing that baffles me is like, I'm not entirely sure like where to put my finger on it. Like I gave that screed at the very beginning about how all of the ways that this movie is terrible. Do not get me wrong. I had a fun time at this movie. It's not a good movie. It's it's pretty bad. It's it's one of the worst ones I've seen all year. And for whatever reason, I didn't care. And I think I was able to let go of that 
Maybe. Like, I, I feel like there's probably like a deeper reason than that at this point. But for whatever reason, like I sat down in the theater expecting to see a movie. Unfortunately, I sat down to see this movie, like having already seen a little bit of the preliminary buzz and knowing that it probably wasn't going to be particularly good. And maybe that helped me to temper my expectations a little bit. So I was not going in expecting like fine sim- cinema. I don't think you were either. There's this grand like helicopter sort of flying into Costa Rica to get to a bat cave. And then Jared Leto's character mentions that these bats are the kind of bats that'll just sort of like shred you alive, almost like they're piranhas or something. (laughs) And at that point, I was like, okay, so this is not a movie that's going to be all that wedded to like scientific reality or even like a semblance of like making a stab at the reality that we're in. So I might as well just like sort of sit back and see where it's going to take me. And where it took me was nowhere really all that surprising, but it was almost fun to see like, okay, they made this plot beat. There was this, this character becomes a vampire. Now what is he going to do? Well, of course he's going to eviscerate everybody in sight and then he's going to feel really guilty about that. And so I sort (laughs) of had fun, like almost like a, a, a roller coaster where you can sort of see the dips coming only it was all dips and like no rises, (laughs) I think. I mean, so there, there's certain things uh, that you can probably kind of have fun with just in sort of a, oh, that's comic book logic kind mm-hmm. of argument. Like the, the thing you mentioned about the vampire bats that are these piranha-like monsters that are really scary instead of, you know, what vampire bats are actually like in nature. You know, at that point in the movie, that's the one of the first things that happens. I was like, okay, that's that's a little silly, but I can I can be on board for silly when it's just sort of, it's not important to be to have verisimilitude in a comic book movie necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think where where I start to where the movie loses me is stuff that where the even the argument of comic book logic can't really explain why you know there there's a there's a scene where um, Michael Morbius, who's apparently this super genius who gets a Nobel Prize, and he's such a genius that he refuses the Nobel Prize for unclear reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he has a password for his secret uh, bat container that is easily guessable by just one of his employees. That yeah. was it, there. There are part parts like that kind of begin to build on each other until for me the the movie collapses under its own weight especially when another random nurse sort of just walks into the room with the again allegedly super secret bat <laughs> container and says oh this little girl you're treating is is going to die you need to you need to come save her ignoring the fact that there are these supposedly piranha like vampire bats flying around there there's things like that that kind of just I, don't know, I, I had a, I had a hard time seeing my way past it, even with the comic book logic kind of allowances. So the movie lost you uh, between like the scene where they they kill a mouse by injecting it and then see the mouse come back to life like from another room while yeah. they're also like operating. They, they on like a small look child. across the hallway, which it, again I think this is an example of the editing being weird, where mm-hmm. it seems like that was supposed to be in a basement or something, and then it's just in a different part of just across the hallway. It was, that kind of stuff i can forgive maybe leaps in logic but leaps in just filmmaking spatial construction is just hard for harder for me to forgive maybe and and that was pretty egregious i feel like like there's a moment where morbius walks in to um like a 
a room where people are counterfeiting money. And he makes mention of a movie that's playing on a TV, but you don't see the TV until like three separate shots later. So you have to sort of infer from context clues that that's what's going on is that he's walked in and he sees somebody watching like a kung fu movie and like you're sort of left guessing as to what that even is like i I think a movie that was a little bit smarter about space and time would have known to establish that there is a movie playing in the background in this room and for whatever reason this one doesn't do that it's all kind of flat really like the compositions as well it's not just the editing it's also just the way that things are arranged in space I, i kind of feel like the only moments that really had any depth were the ones where you unexpectedly get like bullet time slowdowns as people are moving in action. And even those, like the timing for that kind of baffled me. Like there's a chase between Morbius and his nemesis through a subway where they're sort of tumbling down some escalators and then they, the action pauses like halfway down the tumble. And it's just flat and it's just these two men like bearing their fangs at each other. And that at that point I felt like I kind of just had to laugh because there was a lot of drama and no real reason for that drama at that specific <laughs> time. Yeah, so let's uh, let's kind of get back to the question of where where the fun comes from because maybe yeah. there is a little bit of fun to kind of letting yourself go and being borne along on the current of mm-hmm. just pure vampire genre work. So this is like you said there there's a lot of time devoted in this movie to Morbius feeling conflicted over the fact that he is a vampire now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has invented artificial blood, but that will only work for, to sate his thirst for so long. Mm-hmm. And eventually he's going to have to either starve to death or prey on human beings in order to to survive. Whereas his nemesis, who has had the same procedure, is pretty much all about gleefully being a predator. Mm -hmm. So maybe some of the fun is just sort of, even though that's pretty well-trodden territory for vampire fiction, maybe some of the fun is in seeing how cavalier Morbius can be about (laughs) implementing those cliches. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grasping at straws here, but I'm genuinely interested to maybe try to plumb the, uh, Plumb that question a little bit. Trust me, I'm grasping at straws too. Like I am literally as baffled as you are um, as as to how I enjoyed this. Um, maybe it's because all of the plot beats felt kind of preordained, and like the vampirism pieces felt preordained. So the movie didn't really feel like it was necessary to like tread the in between beats, and it just had to get to the meat of the action, and the meat of the action just wasn't all that all, all that great either. So when Morbius first becomes a vampire, he immediately starts killing people. Like the synopsis that you read at the top of the episode isn't really all that accurate because it says like, well, maybe this procedure like worked. It seems like it's a good thing at first. And then all of a sudden he starts, all of a sudden he starts succumbing to his dark side. He succumbs to his dark side, like right off the operating table the man gets injected with vampire bat DNA and then immediately sort of shoots up into the ceiling and like hunches over bat like and then starts killing everybody in sight. And the movie almost presents that as though everybody knew he was going to become a vampire. Like there's no surprise of, oh, he's tearing people's throats out. It's, 
oh, this guy's tearing pe- people's throats out. Maybe he's a vampire. And <laughs> to we're be going fair, to, yeah. to be fair, he it, it did happen aboard a boat called the SS Myrna Mer- is how they pronounce <laughs> it. Which you know, like the when you name a boat after the director of Nosferatu, maybe I mean, maybe that's tipping your hand a little bit. It's just a little bit, but I don't think the I don't know. Like the movie feels like it's trying to be smart or cute about what it's doing and like kind of skipping those steps of surprise or shock or fear and what i got instead was just i don't know i'm i'm surprised that this movie attempted to tell a story without giving any connective tissue to those bones <laughs> well you know the the thing is the one of the things that can make a vampire story interesting is kind of that inherent moral dilemma about mm-hmm. the fact that the vampire can only survive by preying on others and that's obviously a taboo you know uh preying on humans is a big no-no yeah uh, glad we established that <laughs> we need to establish that right off the bat um you know that these these are the hard-hitting truths about christian morality that i'm sure our <laughs> listeners come to this show for but you know that that is kind of an inherently interesting thing is if you have a person who becomes a vampire who's not just a psychopath mm-hmm. how do they kind of navigate that that moral dilemma that they ha- find themselves in i think and morbius kind of head fakes in that direction the the thing is though that our main character the only time he ever really kills some people the movie goes to great pains to say yeah they're mercenaries and they probably deserved it yeah that's really gross and honestly i wish that the movie had spent a little bit more time on like i don't know the hippocratic oath morbius is a doctor he should feel very bad about harming people and taking life and he sort of behaves like he feels bad about the potential to take life in the future but I don't see any mourning happening from that original origin story, partly probably because of the hand-waving, but Morbius isn't even the one who does the hand-waving. Like, Morbius, the character, doesn't. That's just some FBI agents who are out there investigating and doing kind of a terrible job at it, too. <laughs> and maybe that was also part of the, the the fun of it, was just seeing how, I don't know, it, the movie felt sort of Frankensteined together, I think, a little bit from little parts. And maybe this would have been a little bit more fun if it had been a Frankenstein movie. <laughs> instead of a vampire movie i love the classic frankenstein movies and every single time you watch one of the sequels like another classic universal monster sort of comes in and starts to invade them a little bit so like all of the like frankenstein movies after number three are actually secretly wolfman movies instead of frankenstein movies or they're secretly dracula movies instead of frankenstein movies and so i don't know like this kind of felt structurally like it was Frankenstein together, it just could have been, I don't know, a little more coherent about it. So, okay, so so maybe you're, so is the argument then that far from being an example of comic book movies soullessly sucking the life out of <laughs> the uh, modern cinematic blockbuster, it's perhaps a return to cinema's roots where, you know, <laughs> It's it's sort of a nod back to the halcyon days of, of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah, maybe. I think uh, it's not <laughs> self-aware enough to do that is the problem. Um, on a subconscious level, maybe. I don't know. I Part of it might honestly just be the performances. Like, I had a lot of fun watching Matt Smith, especially as Milo the villain, running around, like, sort of swanning about New York City. Um reveling in his newfound power 
I used to be a huge Doctor Who fan. Like my first version of the Doctor that I watched a ton was the Matt Smith Doctor, like had a really big crush on him in college. Um, And so part of the fun might have also just been watching this character who is like chaotic good in that universe be extremely chaotic evil in this one. (laughs) And the movie, I think, is a little bit aware of that as well. Like there's a moment where the FBI agents are, are looking at surveillance footage And they're looking for Dr. Morbius, and then they see Milo, played by Matt Smith, instead, and they say, well, that's not the doctor. And the way that the line is delivered made me think, like, (laughs) oh, no, this this was a little bit self-aware. Oh, not not being being, uh, well-versed in Doctor Who, that one went straight over my head. That's interesting. Let's talk about about the performances, though, because one of the big questions in my mind after watching this movie is... Is Michael Morbius a hero or an anti-hero? In terms of, like, not in terms of, you know, what he ends up being, but what does the movie want him to be? Does the movie Is the movie setting him up as sort of an anti-hero where he's morally gray, but you, you root for him anyway because he's so likable, which the performance does not make him likable and mm-hmm. neither does the writing either. But is is that kind of what the movie's going for? Or is he meant to be basically a straight up here, sort of Spider-Man except with a thirst for blood and the ability to fly and have super hearing? I think it's the latter. And I think that's where this movie really starts to fall apart for me is that there is no internal conflict and there's really not a ton of I don't know. The movie seems to be on Morbius's side the entire time. Doesn't matter what he's doing. Doesn't matter what he's saying. If he is going to snub the King of Sweden and reject a Nobel Prize in person, which is just a baffling choice. Um, the movie really seems to praise him for that. And it also seems to to think that he can really do no wrong. Like everything that he does is just sort of presented as this is what he's going to do because it's the right thing to do. And I think that a smarter movie would have been able to separate the movie's morality from Morbius's morality and maybe made him a little bit more murky and gray and then maybe had something to say about that or maybe not. Well, so the interesting thing about this movie is that Morbius in a lot of ways, as he's framed in in this film, Mm -hmm. is basically Tony Stark. Like he's he's a mechanical genius. He's, you know, super smart. He kind of plays by his own rules. He's kind of got this bad boy, I'm gonna turn down the Nobel Prize persona. And yet there's not really in anything, even in the very first Iron Man movie, Tony Stark is kind of He's got all that swagger, but there's also notes of discomfort with the fact that he's an arms dealer and mm-hmm. basically has built an empire off of helping people uh, kill each other more uh, efficiently. Mm-hmm. And that that thread is kind of present throughout all the Iron Man movies in which it, that's arguably what makes Tony Stark slash Iron Man an interesting character mm-hmm. is trying to find you find yourself rooting for him and then kind of wondering well but how much should we be rooting for somebody like this even if at the end of the day the the answer that the MCU gives us is yes Tony Stark's a good guy <laughs> but uh in in Morbius he basically has all the same character traits except he's also a doctor who even has kind of a save the cat moment where he saves a little girl from by who's having some sort of medical episode, which again is is a plot thread that is basically there solely so he can sort of 
have a good guy moment. He's a doctor. He got his doctorate at the age of 19, which I, I, I hate that detail whenever it's in comic books or anything else, really. Um, I don't, also, for all of the hoopla that is made about Jared Leto's method acting method, which I'm going to just leave on the table and we, we don't have to talk about that too much. But for all of the hoopla that's made about it, um, the CGI does so much more acting for him. And I, like, I don't know what to do with that. He's kind of a void of a man and he's also supposed to be like perfect and good, but also there's, there's no like inherent drive in him other than I'm going to cure this one blood disorder that is specific to me and this one other guy because I am the only person who can do it. And that is the least interesting kind of hero is I am the only one who can do this because it kind of cuts out the rest of the world and reality out of, out of your story and just makes it just about the individual and their choices. And in this case, the movie just sort of co-signs all of the individual's choices anyway. And it's just, it falls apart. Like as I'm thinking about it, I'm now I'm questioning, like I was questioning why I was having fun watching this movie, but I'm really questioning it now. I mean, maybe, maybe the fun is the, the friends we made along the way slash <laughs> the, the conversation that we're having about it right now, because, and again, this dovetails strangely with the whole vampire movie thing, which is all about kind of, you know, what choices do you make when you find that you have been transformed into a creature of the night mm -hmm. who must prey upon other human beings in order to keep living. And when both, when the movie kind of throws up its hands on both that aspect of it and kind of the more traditional hero's journey, comic book hero character arc, you're kind of left wondering, well, what actually happened in this movie? What happened in this movie was two guys became vampires and then one guy killed the other guy. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> that's exactly it. I tried like rehashing the plot like afterwards, and that's that's essentially what I came up with. And also there's a diner scene, um, which I think is trying to be kind of a Michael Mann style diner scene where two people sort of bear their hearts and souls to each other and then like reveal what's going on. And uh it's not that for one the diner scene happens during daylight so it's not it can't be a michael mann diner scene anyway but for the second like there's no tension between these characters at all they're just two people who exist because the plot dictates that they must exist in this room and they're going to say some lines because that's what the script says that they're going to say and then i guess they're going to go on and move on and find a solution to all of their problems by killing another vampire um I don't know. It, it it felt very on the rails to me. And I think the amusement came from seeing how all of those little pieces slotted into place, but they didn't slot neatly. They just sort of slid there because they were forced to. You know, there is something to be said for playing a little game with yourself in a theater, saying like, how far, how many steps ahead of this movie can I be and, and be 100% correct and still kind of derive some sort of pleasure from the filmmaking. So I don't know. Have we arrived at an answer of, of where the fun is? That might be where the fun would be for me, but I you know, I don't want to speak for you as far as that's, that goes. That's gotta be it. Either that or just the absolute baffling left turns that did occasionally happen. Like this guy can fly in front of a subway car, I guess. Um, but like that doesn't really have any bearing on the plot or anything that was actually going to happen. It just happened to be a very convenient way to escape. And then 
things go back on the rails immediately and then you know exactly where the movie's going to end. Yeah. Well, maybe you can you can at least watch for those those occasional left turns. And you know, Jared Harris is in the movie too. So there's that. In the most anemic role I've ever seen him in, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> they massacred my boy. <laughs> Well, we'll we'll leave things there with uh, a lament for Jared Harris and a vampire pun all rolled up into one with the the anemic wordplay. Listeners, that is our review of Morbius. It's currently in theaters. If you've had a chance to see this movie and have some thoughts about where the fun is in this film, <laughs> please let us know. You can always tweet at us at Pod on Twitter or send us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about a much better vampire movie here in the Watchlist segment. Let the right one in. was will be fine by the surface of the deep and this is the conversation the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there keeping the conversation about movies going and i feel like uh after a movie like morbius Mm -hmm. the question that we posed to everyone on twitter this past week is more needed than ever so sarah you you were uh kind enough to tweet out the question what listener what good stuff have you been watching lately and we got quite a lot of uh feedback on that one so i was glad to glad to see that yeah we did um elijah olson tweeted at us and said that um he saw hitchcock's shadow of a doubt on friday and that he's working on a hitchcock quest uh next up is going to be notorious both movies I haven't seen. So, Elijah, you'll have to fill us in and maybe we'll have to get some Hitchcock into there into oh, the watch list section. Oh, man. Elijah is in for a big treat with Notorious. And I don't know, maybe you will too, Sarah. Maybe that'll be a, a future watch list segment because Notorious is just chef's kisses. It's, it's wonderful. Excellent. Delighted to hear that. Um, let's see. Uh, Philip Marinello also tweeted at us and said that uh, he saw the director's cut of The Counselor, which was immensely better than the theatrical version, a bleak masterpiece. Also another movie I have not seen. I, I'm interested in that director's cut because I was so excited about The Counselor, you know, the screenplay by Cormac McCarthy and Ridley Scott directing. I, was just, I thought it would be amazing and I was so let down by the theatrical version but maybe the director's cut is the thing to redeem it moral of the story is always give ridley scott director's cut um because the man knows how to tell a story and he knows how to tell a story well so you you think we would have learned since blade runner but apparently apparently not so the studios keep trying to fight him and you can't fight ridley scott no no (laughs) indeed uh lindsey dunn also tweeted at us and said that she saw rrr amazing must be seen to be believed 
haha, see what you did there. Um, best theatrical experience of the year so far. This is one that was sort of on my radar, and then I found out that it was going to be out of theaters before I get the chance to see it, but uh, it looks bonkers, so um, hopefully it'll come onto streaming at some point um, soon. So, Kevin, was this one something that you'd heard of? Uh, it, it wasn't on my radar either, so I'm actually really thankful to Lindsay for writing in and putting that on my radar, because I'll, I'll have to check that out as well. Yeah, um, it's a for those who may not know what RRR is, it's an Indian uh, Telugu language uh, epic period action drama, uh, which sounds like it's up my alley. Um, and uh, it's a fictional story about two Indian revolutionaries and their fight against the British Raj. So I'm always down for a good historical action movie. So yeah. that may be something to seek out in the future. For sure. We also heard from Ron Sturry, a listener and uh, one of our patrons. He wrote in to uh, tell us about Parallel Mothers, and he had this to say about it. Parallel Mothers had people behaving in very human ways that really made you empathize with them. I was so impressed by Penelope Cruz. I usually am. The film covered a lot of time in the mother's lives and didn't fill in every detail. It credited you with enough intelligence that you could figure it out. The film had two narratives that were intertwined. One was about the atrocities committed by Franco's people during the Spanish Civil War. The other was about two mothers very far apart in age who face similar challenges, but one is wealthy and experienced while the other is young and naive. There were very real themes of forgiveness and truth-telling throughout. So thanks so much, Ron, for, for writing in. I, I really enjoyed reading your thoughts in full and the message that you sent us over on Patreon. And obviously, we really appreciate you being a patron in the first place. To any listeners who are curious about that themselves, you can go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Um, that's kind of a way to determine if you have a you know few spare dollars every month that you would like to use to help keep the show going. That's a good way to do it. There are various tiers that you can pledge at. You can find them all on that website. Um, you can get lots of good swag. You can also, uh, you know, kind of help us build the community. Obviously, you know, we've, uh, talked to Ron before and we've really appreciate all the times that he's uh, shared his thoughts with the show and shared his dollars with us as well. So thanks so much to Ron. Thanks to all of our patrons. And uh, if you aren't a patron yet, check it out. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, listeners, we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where... One host recommends a movie for the other host to watch that that other host has not yet seen. So this week, Kevin recommended that we keep the vampire theme going and we watch Let the Right One In, which was directed by Tomas Alfredson uh, and came out in 2008. So a little bit more of a, a recent one than some of the other ones that we've seen. When Oscar... A sensitive, bullied 12-year-old boy living with his mother in suburban Sweden meets his new neighbor, the mysterious and moody Ailey. They strike up a friendship. Initially reserved with each other, Oscar and Ailey slowly form a close bond, but it soon becomes apparent that she is no ordinary young girl. Eventually, Ailey shares her dark, macabre secret with Oscar, revealing her connection to a string of bloody local murders. Um, 
so this is probably my favorite movie of the watch list so far that's that's been recommended. Um, but I was curious to know, um, beyond the vampire theme, like, uh, what made you pick this one? Because it's kind of a movie that sort of plays with those traditional vampire tropes, but it never really fulfills them exactly in a way that you expect. So was was there something that you connected with with this movie um, or something that you found, like, most surprising or most effective? So, I mean, I... I think what one of the things I like so much about this movie is how it is simultaneously a very traditional vampire tale. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, you know, kind of a lot of the usual folkloric aspects of vampires that get treatment, you know, like vampires don't like sunlight. Uh, vampires can't enter a a building unless they've been invited. Mm -hmm. You know, vampires feeding on blood, like all, all these things are well-established parts of the vampire canon. What I appreciate about Let the Right One In is it found ways to weave those aspects into a story that felt utterly fresh. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just recapitulating vampire cliches. It found ways to reframe them that made me see a lot of them anew and just reconsider not just how interesting it is to consider a monster that has these characteristics, but also what the, uh, the underpinnings of it are in terms of the, just the, the thematic thrust of those things, kind of what meaning do those vampire tropes carry Hmm. and let the right one in just in telling the story about two children and, (laughs) taking that as the vehicle for for this vampire story. I thought it was just very interesting and unlike anything I'd ever seen to that point. Yeah, there's a lot to do with, I think, the formation of an identity and then also people seeing each other for who they really are and not who they present themselves as. So while I was watching this movie, um, the other movie that came to mind most was Ingmar Bergman's Persona, um, Mm -hmm. which is a movie that I'm not going to pretend I'm smart enough to fully understand necessarily. Um, But it has a lot to do with um, identity and the presentation of that identity and then the assumption of somebody else's identity or parts of it sort of as your own. Um, There's a shot right at the beginning of Persona where a boy wakes up in a morgue and then looks at a screen that has the face of one of the main characters in the movie, and the boy sort of puts his hand up on the screen, and you can see him in silhouette. It might be, like, one of the more common images from the movie, other than the ones of, like, the two women who who form, like, the emotional core of the film. But that shot of the boy with his hand up on the screen is actually repeated multiple times in this movie as well. So when we first meet Oscar, he's kind of looking out into the courtyard from his apartment and he's got his hand up on the glass and he's he's looking out at the snow falling. Um, and then at one point we meet um, Ailey and um, she slash he, I guess, spoilers for, for <laughs> a, a movie that's uh, a little over a decade old. Um he's watching Oscar through a window and he's kind of assumed the same pose as well. And it's a shot that's repeated. I lost count of how many times it shows up in this movie, but it happens probably like three or four times, just this repeated shot of someone looking in with their hand up against some sort of a barrier, like watching somebody else, that other person not knowing that they're being watched and sort of acting the most like themselves that they do, like when they're not putting on an identity for somebody else to look at. And 
every single time it's these two characters looking at each other and coming to a better understanding of each other. And I just, I found that so fascinating. Yeah, I, I, that's that's a really interesting connection that I had never drawn myself with Persona. That's a um, really astute mm-hmm. way of looking at it. And I think that that is a really enriching way to look at this movie because the movie is essentially about, you know, identities and, you know, how we present ourselves to others and how as the relationship between Oscar and Ailey deepens, they begin to let each other into their their inner lives bit by bit. Mm -hmm. And it's common for a story like that where, oh, there are these two characters, they're opening each they're opening themselves up to the other person and um, they're they're letting themselves truly be known. That's that's a wonderful aspirational thing in a lot of movies. And this one, it's a lot more ambiguous because mm-hmm. the flip side to that act is that when you reveal your true self to another person, you're also revealing your own darkness to them. You're not just showing. You're not just being vulnerable about you know the the parts of yourselves that that are lovable but you think nobody could ever love you're also revealing parts of yourself that are dark and maybe even wicked mm-hmm. and maybe the other person loves those things too oh, is that is that a, that's kind of a disturbing thing mm-hmm. and yet it's the this film walks a very interesting tightrope between making this a very kind of sweet story about two um 12 year olds who kind of come to t- really care for each other while also kind of making the audience very uncomfortable with that. And not just because Ailey's a vampire. If anything, Oscar, by the end of the film, is a more disturbing character than the vampire herself. Yeah, and that's the thing... Because I felt Oscar was kind of a disturbing character even to begin with. Like when we first meet him, he has a knife and he's rehearsing what he's going to do to one of his schoolyard bullies and he can't fully bring himself to do that. But he's also collecting like newspaper clippings of of disturbing crimes as well. Um, And he's never showing himself to be vulnerable to anybody, even to the bullies who have sensed that he has been vulnerable. Like he does, he doesn't open up that side of himself, even to his mother. He never tells his mom that he's being bullied either. Like it seems as though all of the adults in his life have sort of skated above his head, sort of. And he is unable to show himself as he is to them for so long that it's almost as though he's beyond help. And so when Ailey shows up and is, and reveals herself to be interested in Oscar. I think he takes that as a lifeline and as I don't, it's it's not even like the movie is condoning or or it's it's not as if the movie is condoning Oscar's um I don't know mental state or anything like that. Like it, it's a smarter movie than that. It's skating like you said it's 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 walking a very tight fine tightrope. Um but at the same time, um, I don't know, like, logically where else Oscar would, would go because nobody else has really given him that attention or, or that space to be himself. And so he's sort of spiraled down into this little pit where he, he is himself and he can't really climb out of it except with the help of, of, of a vampire who's going to use those tendencies um, for, for nefarious purposes. This film plays with your sympathies quite a bit because yeah. because they're children, you 
you do want good things for them. You want to root for them. But (laughs) at a certain point, as as the movie progresses, you begin to question... Should I be rooting for them to be together? Should I should I be happy that uh, Ailey is drawing Oscar into a relationship where his violent tendencies can be used to procure her victims? Should I be happy that uh, Oscar, who is a very disturbed young person who wants to hurt others because he kind of fantasizes about it, is it good for him to be in Ailey's life when she is a vampire and really only has to do that as a necessity to survive. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of playing with the audience's sympathies is I think, again, what puts this a cut above many other films, which often will kind of head fake sort of at, Oh, it's so I'm such an angsty vampire because I must hurt others in order to survive. But at the end of the day, your sympathies are squarely with the protagonist and you you kind of root for them regardless. Mm-hmm. And I think let the right one in always it, it's your, your sympathies are with our, our main characters to a certain extent, but the film never really lets you rest comfortably in, in that. And I think the key thing is that Ailey has gone well beyond the angst over. I have to use other people in order to survive. And the angst is purely over. I think I'm going to have to use this other child in order to do it. Um, and I think you get a little bit of a glimpse of Oscar's future in the previous familiar mm. that shows up as well, which, oh, it, it, it's just, it's heartbreaking to watch because this man is clearly devoted to Ailey and Ailey doesn't even really think much of him anymore. And he's clearly been doing this work for a very long time. Like he's practiced at it. Um, and the moment that he's no longer useful, Ailey just decides to to take away like the actual lifeblood. Like she's been sort of sucking away his lifeblood to begin with, like forcing him to commit crimes and to murder so that she can live off of that blood. Um, But as soon as he's no longer useful, like he's really no longer useful and she's just sort of going to throw him away, like literally throw him out the window. And I find that (laughs) deeply heartbreaking because there's no other way for Oscar's story to end, but that way as well, I think. And I think that that too is an interesting way to take an interesting direction to take the vampire myth the the idea of this this immortal being who and again that's a well well trodden territory for any story about immortality the the idea that when an immortal person uh forms a relationship with a mortal person Mm -hmm. that necessarily means that one of them is going to age and die while the other one stays exactly the same Mm -hmm. and when that's transplanted into a vampire story that acquires a new dimension where not only is that kind of a, a tragic way for any relationship to go, there's also the very discomforting notion that this person know that this mortal knows that this undying being is a predator who must kill to survive. Mm-hmm. And yet that bond that has been forged compels them to become an accomplice. Mm-hmm. And that's very disturbing at the same time you see the way that this old man and this this young girl they have this this strange connection that is it's not it's not played for just horror there's a horror in it but it's not purely just grotesque and maybe i mean that's why i like the movie so much is it's it is a horror film but it's not 
it doesn't use its horror elements for shock value or for grotesquerie, and that's difficult to do a lot of times. It's very humane, I think, um, which is not a label that I slap lightly onto like your given horror movie. Um, but I think it's it's deeply aware of. I, th- I think the brokenness that kind of resists like resides in, in the middle of like the human soul. Um, and I think that it is compassionate towards that. And it also understands that there are people out there who are going to exploit that brokenness for their own means and end. And maybe they don't even necessarily want to do it. But the fact that that exploitation happens is, is a sin <laughs> and evil all the same. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 almost tender, I think. And maybe part of that has to do with the, some of the cinematography that's going on as well here, too. I was delighted to see Hoyt van Hoytma's mm-hmm. name pop up in those opening credits. And then, like, even before any of the action happens, even before you see anybody on screen, the opening credits happen over Snowfall. And there's actually like a rack focus where there's there's focus on, like, snow in the in the far background. And then as the credits move on the focus shifts to snowflakes that are falling a little bit closer to the camera. And like that level of craft and ability made me realize like I was in good hands, like just straight from the get go. And that care um, and attention to detail, I think is extended to basically everything else in the entire movie. Um, Detail. One of the details that I really, really loved was whenever Oscar and Ailey are together, like next to each other, they're in very shallow focus and you can't really see the rest of the world around them. It's very blurry behind them. They only see each other. They're only conscious of each other. And the movie, like for the time, is also conscious of them and what they're doing, too. Um, and I think the only other time that happens is is towards the very end when Oscar is confronted by his bully's older brother. You kind of get that same shallow focus and that same connection because these two people see each other for who they are as well. And it's not going to end well, but there's still that, that moment of connection between two people who are going to end up being the death of each other eventually that's that's the uh and that that whole sequence ends with uh extreme close-ups on oscar's eyes and ailey's eyes and they're both looking into each other and and they 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 they're wearing these smiles of of relief like i finally i've i found you yeah and that's it's a heartwarming image in isolation but it's the capstone to a sequence where Ailey has just slaughtered children. children. Yeah. <laughs> and no matter how awful they are, these bullies are, did they deserve to be decapitated and dumped into a swimming pool? Probably not. No. <laughs> um, and, and so the way that Alfredson finds ways to juxtapose these these images of great human warmth and connection with great human savagery is i think central to how this film works and and makes you question just that kind of mingled savagery and warmth that is sort of innate to the human experience in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. yeah i keep thinking about there's a scene midway through the movie where um oscar's class has gone ice skating and in one corner of the pond, Oscar is facing off against his bullies, and he's able to commit a, an act of violence that surprises everyone, probably including himself, except Ailey. And then on the other end of the pond is the dead body of one of Ailey's familiar's victims, just kind of frozen into the ice. And 
it's kind of a marvel that the movie is able to keep your focus going in both of those directions at once without feeling distracted. And I think the one sort of necessitates the other. Like if if you're going to end up with a dead body in the ice, you have to have that first like inciting act of violence as well. Um, and so it's kind of that just as with the previous familiar's death, like you know what's going to happen to Oscar, like this other thing where Oscar is on one side of the pond and there's a dead body on the other end of the pond as well. Like, you know where this is going it's, to go. It's a timeline, essentially. Yeah. Beginning of life and end of life. A horribly bleak and cold one. Like, and and that's where I think the, the casting is is such a, a great asset. So, so I, I, and I apologize if I advance, if I'm mispronouncing his name, that the actor who plays Oscar, uh, Kara Hedebrandt, mm-hmm. is... You know he's he's this extremely blonde boy. He's got kind of like this 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 um these delicate features. He's he's got the, these pursed lips that just he's in in another movie he would be an innocent little mm-hmm. boy. And there are lots of touches that Alfredson adds to make you kind of focus on the aspect of him. He's you know from a a ruptured home. Um, when he's with his father, it's ruined, it's kind of implied that his father is an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and you feel deeply for the moment where uh, a father-son moment is interrupted by a drinking buddy, mm-hmm. and um, all all that is just against that tenderness that you mentioned earlier, and uh, that's something that I think the American remake of this film let me in, which is much more overtly creepy in the way mm-hmm. that it it's frames both uh oscar's character and ailey's character doesn't really get like mm-hmm. the these still are essentially children one of them has been a child for as she says a very very long time mm-hmm. but they are just children and um there's something about the world that def- that is deforming to them mm-hmm. and um it's it's disturbing but it's also tragic in the same way that the story of Ailey's familiar sacrificing his entire life in her service is also disturbing and tragic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. Other than <laughs> I'm horrified. It's, it's a really great piece of, of vampire fiction. I was really glad that I was able to, to share it with you. I was um, knowing how much you like vampires. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's the summer of the vampire movie. Um, listeners may or may not know that I'm, I'm working on a piece about the twilight movies, which don't hold a candle to this <laughs> at all. Um, specifically about the production design of, of the twilight movies, which speaking of production design, the production design for this movie in particular is really, really good. There's just some very good strategic use of the of the color red, but never like on the nose. It just means violence, you know, like Oscar's father has a red coat and Oscar wears it from time to time. And you can see him like sniff it because it smells like his dad. Um, and so it's also like a comforting thing as well. And I just I love that little piece and that, that detail and all of all of the knitwear and everything. Yeah, Alfredson, th- this was probably a lot of. Americans' first introduction to both Alfredson, the director, and Hoytema's mm-hmm. uh, as a cinematographer, and you really see just what they're capable of together in, in their use of color, the the production design, the the way that the, just the coldness yes. of a Scandinavian winter is used to evoke is used in such interesting ways uh, in concert with the the idea of a 
of a vampire that comes out only at night. Those long Scandinavian winter nights. Some good loneliness fodder there, I think. Um, And I think the image that I'm going to be stuck with for a really long time after having seen this, it's not going to be any of the bloody sequences, although those are there too. Um, But it's going to be the ice crystals that have formed around Ailey's feet as she walks in after being invited in. Um, Just knowing that like she carries that cold with her and she's so used to it that she's forgotten how to react to those circumstances otherwise. I just, I find that deeply sad and deeply lonely and, and especially knowing that Oscar's going down that path. I keep getting stuck on that because he's so young and he's not exactly innocent, but he doesn't deserve it either. And at the same time... None of them deserve it. No, 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 none of them do. Um, and at the same time, like, this is the only, like, moment of human connection I think that he's really felt that he's had. And I find that even more tragic than the eventually tragic end that he's going to come to. Yeah, none none of the characters in this film deserve this world. No. And I don't know, I think that's a, that, that's a really, in a lot of ways, a fitting way to tell a vampire tale. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm glad that, that you liked it so much. Listeners, uh, that was our watch list review of Let the Right One In uh, from 2008. If you haven't had a chance to, to see it yet, I mean, obviously... Uh, we went into a lot of detail with this film, but it's one of those ones that has to be seen to be believed, so to speak. So uh, <laughs> definitely recommend that you check it out, especially if you have a certain yen for vampire tales as well. Next week is Holy Week. So, yes. uh, you know, a little bit of a of a gear shift there, but to accommodate that uh, shift in... Subject matter and mood, we're we're going to be talking about a pretty special movie on the Watchlist segment next week. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Andrei Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublev, uh, which came out in 1966. Um, and it's sort of a historic epic-ish, but it's really about an icon painter um, in the 15th century who painted a lot of like famous Russian Orthodox icons that are still in use today. If you just Google Russian Orthodox icon, like you'll recognize the imagery that will end up appearing at some point in this film. Um, It's a tremendous movie. It's very contemplative. It has a lot to do with the role of art in life, especially life that is hard and sort of brutal and, and beset by, by evil on all sides. And I think that's a very appropriate movie to watch uh, during Holy Week. So hopefully you can join us uh, as we go through this one. Yeah, that's that's definitely, that's been a movie that's been on my, on my watch list for, for too long. Um, I'm looking forward to catching up with it next week. And listeners, if you want to uh, catch up with me, uh, definitely check out Andre Rublev before next week's episode. Mm-hmm. Should be a good discussion. Uh, but for now, that's the end of this episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McClinton. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larsen. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.